You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.vin. Okay, so if I was to say the phrase game changer, what would come to mind for you? Maybe it would be um, a personal thing, like starting a new job or um, getting married, having kids maybe. Maybe you'd go a wee bit bigger and you'd think of a historical moment, um, something like the D-Day landings or um, when the Berlin Wall was uh, brought down. Maybe it was just when um, Deliveroo started delivering McDonald's. Like anything, right? These, these are all things that for some of us have changed the way that we live and actually changed the experience that we have in the world. And today we're going to be talking about what I think is essentially the biggest, most game-changing moment in history. It's a moment that's completely changed how we experience life and how we can live. And that is the cross. So for a while we've been going through, um, as a church, the second half of John's Gospel. Um, and we've been looking at Jesus' last words. We've really been walking with Jesus on his journey to the cross, and we've seen him teaching um, the disciples. We've listened to him, you know, teaching them how to live by remaining in him and by loving one another as he has loved them. But we've also watched him demonstrate how to do that and what it looks like by washing their feet like a servant and by continuing to love them despite knowing that they're all going to betray or desert him. And now we've got to the point and the time has come. So after eating and praying together, Jesus and his disciples go to a garden. Jesus is arrested and he's brought before the Roman governor to pass judgment on him. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. um, And I'm going to be reading from John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail the King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claims to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation 
of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on each side of him and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And moving forward to verse 28. Later, knowing that now everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of, the, of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Amen. So obviously there's a lot in that today. And really there's no way we're going to be able to unpack everything that's in there. But what I want to focus on is... Um, what Jesus actually says in the passage, Jesus' last words. And hopefully as we go through, we can draw some things out of that to encourage us today. So, you know, as I've been preparing for this and, you know, reading through the passage, thinking about what Jesus says, the first thing that struck me actually was that Jesus' first um, response, Jesus' first, the, th the first thing he says in the passage is nothing. Right? When Pilate asks him, where do you come from? says, Jesus gave no answer. And Pilate is like, why aren't you taking this opportunity to defend yourself? Like, it throws him a bit. He's a bit confused. And, you know, he kind of asks Jesus, you know what's happening here, right? You know that I'm the one you've got to convince if you don't want to be crucified. He says, I have the power to either free you or crucify you. And it actually kind of brings up this question. And it's the same question that in February in 2021 um, was brought to infamy with Jackie Weaver. I don't know if you guys remember, um, but Jackie Weaver caused absolute chaos at the Handford Parish Council meeting um, by essentially banishing 
I think the chairman, one of one of the um, members of the council, and booting them off the Zoom call for bad behaviour, and this led to an uproar, basically, to chaos, um, which ended with Jackie throwing another two people off the call. And the question that had sparked all the controversy was this question, did she have the authority? You know, and that question produced a load of memes and it, you know, it was viral and it was, seemed like everything everyone was talking about for weeks. In our passage today, you know, Pilate thinks that he has all the authority. But is he right, actually? Does he have the authority? You know, I think when we look at what Jesus says, the answer is, in theory, yes, and also no. When Pilate says, I have the power, Jesus doesn't say, um, as was said to Jackie Weaver, you have no authority here, Pilate, no authority at all. He actually acknowledges that Pilate does have some authority, but he reminds him where it comes from. You know, it was given to him from above, he says. In other words, Pilate has some authority, but he doesn't have the ultimate authority. He's in a position of authority, but he's not at the top of the chain of command. You know, just like um, orders from a high-ranking general would kind of overrule or supersede the orders of a lower-ranked officer, the orders of the king actually are above them all. In Pilate's mind, that position maybe is held by Caesar. But for Jesus, you know, he knows that in reality that position is held by God alone. And it's that kind of ultimate authority that Jesus has submitted himself to. Earlier on in John's Gospel in chapter 12, when Jesus is looking ahead to this moment, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Or in other Gospels, you know, they record Jesus' words when he prays in the garden before being arrested. Not my will, but yours be done. And, you know, because Jesus is already fully surrendered to this higher authority and to God's will, he knows that actually any authority that Pilate has um, is kind of rendered meaningless. Because he's put God as his king, any um, authority that Pilate has is superseded by that. And so even when Pilate goes out and sits, um, it says, on the judge's seat, Jesus knows that in reality that's not his seat. You know, it's only God that can sit there. And because of this reality, he chooses to walk towards the cross in obedience. With the first words he says in this passage, Jesus submits to God's authority. But not everyone makes that same choice, right? This question of authority is one where we actually see a conflict. And there's kind of a clash between the kingdom of God where he has authority and the kingdom of the world where someone else has been put in that place. You know, we see that in what Pilate says, but I think actually we see it most in the uh, response of the religious leaders. Right back in the Old Testament, right, when, when Israel first became a nation, um, God makes them this promise and he takes them out of Egypt and he rescues them from slavery and oppression and he says to them that um, they will be his people and he will be their God. 
You know, they have no king because God himself is their king. But eventually they kind of get tired of this and they want to be like all the other nations around them and have a human king who rules over them. So they ask God through um, Samuel, the prophet, to give them their own king. I'm just going to read that kind of exchange in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Israel's king is meant to be God, but they have rejected him. And in this moment where, you know, the Jewish leaders are trying to use all of their authority and all of their influence um, to protect their own position and their own power, they actually make a choice. We have no king but Caesar, they say. And, you know, that seems ironic to me because they, they have put Jesus on trial. They're standing accusing Jesus of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God and in doing so by making himself equal with God, by putting himself in God's place. But actually, they're doing the exact same thing. In this moment, they are putting Caesar in the place of God. They're choosing to step out of his kingdom and out from under his authority and give that to someone else. So my first question I wanted us to think about today is, you know, whose authority do we want to live under? As a country, we've been asking ourselves that, haven't we, over the last few years? And, you know, without getting political, I think we've felt let down by the people that we've put in leadership at times. Even on a personal level, maybe the word um, authority kind of has started to carry this negative um, implication for us. For most of us, there have been times when we've been under um, someone's leadership where they've misused authority or where it's been a bit broken. You know, maybe it's been a teacher or a parent and they've just been super strict or um, kind of overbearing. Maybe it's been a bad boss that has, um, you know, used his authority to put himself up and to promote and protect his own position at the expense of people around him or her. So when we think about this idea of choosing to live under authority, it can feel a bit uncomfortable, I think, or unappealing. But does it have to be like that? Um, one of my favorite movies when I was in high school was um, The 300. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, where the brave 300 Spartans um, make their kind of last stand against this vast Persian army. And as part of that, we actually get to see the two kings of these nations. And they have pretty different leadership styles. So Xerxes, the Persian king, has his soldiers whipped into battle and he like forces them and drives them like slaves into battle. But King Leonidas of Sparta, his men stand with him. They choose to stand and fight with him out of love and loyalty. And then we get this conversation between these kings and, and Xerxes, you know, he's trying to intimidate the Spartan king and he says, imagine what horrible fate awaits my enemies when I would gladly kill any of my own men for victory. And then Leonidas, the king of Sparta, replies, and I would die for any one of mine. You know, there can be a temptation, I think, especially when we've experienced that broken, um, misused authority or bad leadership to start to reject this idea of submitting to leadership and to authority. But God's authority is actually not like that. 
You know, it's not about taking from us or just enforcing a bunch of rules and regulations that are there to rob us of, of joy. You know, earlier in, in the book of John, when Jesus is talking about why he came, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in our passage today, we actually see Jesus making good on that promise. See, Jesus' authority is that of a king, but it's also that of a shepherd. You know, one of the most famous um, passages in the Bible is in Psalm 23, when King David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, unlike this broken, misused authority that we might have experienced, God doesn't use his authority to control or oppress, but actually to lead us into what is best for us and to establish his kingdom of peace and of justice where there is like a new fullness of life to be found. That's the kind of authority that we're called to live under. And that is the kind of kingdom that we actually get to be a part of. Maybe for some of us, there's um, areas of our lives that we don't feel we've fully surrendered to God. Maybe we are holding on to the authority and making ourselves the king instead of putting God in that place. So after we finish today, you know, I'd love to make time for us to actually surrender or to re-surrender some of those things to Jesus, to trust his authority in our lives and that actually his way is better and it leads to fullness and peace. So, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, we've been going through this series in uh, John on Jesus' last words, and, and we're focusing on those words in the passage today. And actually, when we're thinking about that idea of last words, um, there aren't many that are clearer than it is finished. And these are the words, actually, that we're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about together this morning. And, you know, there's a lot to unpack, there's a lot to get through, um, but we'll do our best. Um, so we know these aren't Jesus' last, last words. Um, maybe we've read on in the story, or probably by this point we may have had some spoilers. Um, and we know that actually Jesus doesn't stay dead. Um, and as we continue in our series over the next few weeks, um, we'll get to hear more about that. But these words, it is finished, are, they are his last words before his death. And there's so much depth in them um, that like I say, we won't be able to unpack all this morning, but I'd love to just draw on a few things that will hopefully encourage us and strengthen us and bring us really closer to Jesus today. 
So to start off, the word that Jesus uses here, or at least the way that John translates it when he writes it in Greek is, um, obviously we have it as finished, but it can also be translated as completed, accomplished, or fulfilled. So the question I really want to think about is actually what has been finished? What has been completed? What has been accomplished? What is it that Jesus in this moment on the cross has fulfilled? And like I said, there's loads in that, but I think to really simplify it, the answer is it's Jesus' ministry, right? It's everything that he came to do on earth. So then the question becomes, okay, well then what did Jesus actually come to do? So to answer that question, um, I want to actually think about who Jesus is. And to do that, we're going to look at some of the names that he's given. So in Jewish culture, um, the name that a person is given is not just a way of differentiating them from the person sitting next to them when you want their attention, but actually there's an identity and there's a weight that comes with a name. In the Bible, we see on multiple occasions, God giving someone a new name to go along with a new calling or a new purpose. For example, Abraham is renamed Abraham, which means father of nations, and Simon is renamed Peter, as he's going to be, Jesus says, the rock on which the church will be built. Um, early in the book of John, Jesus also gets a bunch of different names. You know, names like the Son of God, the Messiah, King of Israel, the Lamb of God, and the Son of Man. And these all tell us something about Jesus, but... Um, Today, we're going to focus on just two. We've not got time, obviously, to go through all of them. And the first one I wanted to look at is this title, the Son of Man. This is actually the name that Jesus calls himself most often. And it tells us, I think because of that, who he thought he was, what he thought he was there to do, what he thought was finished. So when he does this, when he calls himself the Son of Man, you know, it this is something I didn't realize for a long time. I thought it was just kind of a weird thing he called himself. But actually, he's referencing this kind of mysterious figure in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Um, so basically, in, in the Old Testament, Daniel has this dream about the end of the world. Um, and it's pretty trippy, and it's full of, like, a bunch of different metaphors for different things. But basically, it's about how all these different earthly kingdoms will rise up. And then at the end of that, God will come, it says, the Ancient of Days will come, and he will sit, and it will be time for him to judge. So I'm going to read that, and it's from Daniel chapter 7. It says, um, so reading, just following on from that. So after God sits to judge, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In calling himself the son of man, Jesus is like referencing this dream and he's saying actually that it's through him that God's kingdom is ultimately going to be revealed. This everlasting kingdom of perfect peace and perfect justice this is part of his purpose, and actually, he is going to be the king. But in that passage there that we read, you know, there's kind of a, uh, a condition for that kingdom to come. 
Because actually for there to be perfect justice, there needs to be perfect judgment. And that's the context that we actually see the Son of Man come into as God has taken his seat to judge. And actually that's a problem for us. Because when we're talking about perfection, you know, none of us meet that standard. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And also that the wages of sin is death. So we desperately want this kingdom to come, but we can't deal with the judgment. In John chapter 12, Jesus predicts his death and he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then after he makes a decision not to back out, but to go to the cross, he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That sounds just like Daniel's vision, right? Like the son of man is lifted up and he gathers all people to himself and God's kingdom is established. But Jesus says, now is the time. Daniel's dream is about the end of the world, but Jesus says, now is the time for that kingdom to begin. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Well, so what does he mean by that? You know, he's saying that even though the sentence might be read and carried out at the end, there's actually something about the judgment itself that is about to happen at the cross. That somehow in the moment of the cross, the world will be judged. But we still have a problem, right? Because when that judgment happens, we are still guilty. And that takes us to the second name of Jesus that we're going to talk about this morning, which is, you know, as well as coming of the son of, of as a son of man who establishes God's kingdom, Jesus is also called the Lamb of God. You know, this is the name that John the Baptist gives him when he speaks about him. Um, and, you know, as we're going to talk about, um, it's something that when we've read in our passage today, it's kind of highlighted and it's brought up and it, we're kind of, we're supposed to notice something about that. In our passage today, John in a few places, tells us it was the day of preparation for the Passover. Like, that's important. You know, the Passover was this special day of celebration for the people of Israel as they remembered that time when God set them free from, uh, from Egypt um, and brought them out of slavery and into promise and freedom. So God had been sending these plagues on um, Egypt and Pharaoh had kept refusing to let Israel go. And eventually it comes to God sending the angel of death. And he tells the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and to put some of its blood on the doorframe of their house so that when the angel of death comes, it will see the blood of the lamb and pass over. So a lamb was sacrificed and its blood saved God's people from death. This name of Jesus and the fact that, you know, he is actually killed at the Passover it's there to show us that for us, Jesus is that Passover lamb. You know, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In going to the cross, Jesus becomes that sacrifice for us. His blood washes away the sin that has made us guilty. And so the death that we deserve can actually pass over. 
the cross is the answer to this problem of judgment. There's another really famous verse in John chapter 3, and it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus brings forward judgment from the end to the cross, but instead of condemning, he actually saves us from it. You know, when we believe in him and put our trust in him, that debt of sin is transferred to him and it dies with him on the cross. There's an illustration I've heard for this where um, two friends go to school together and uni and they're really close, but, you know, afterwards they kind of drift apart. One becomes a judge and one, um, unfortunately, turns to a life of crime. But one day the, the criminal actually is taken to court and sits before his old friend who is in the judge's seat. And the friend has a dilemma because he loves his friend, but he has to do justice. And so he finds him the appropriate amount, but it's a lot of money, like say like 20 grand. And he knows that his friend will never be able to pay. So he himself takes off his robe and steps down and pays the fine, writes the check himself. Sin has a cost and it has to be paid and none of us can afford it, but Jesus could. And so on the cross, he pays the debt of sin once and for all so that we can actually face God's judgment without fear of being found guilty. And instead we get to enter his kingdom and have eternal life with him. When Jesus says it is finished, he's not just talking about judgment, but actually about sin and death itself. And in that one act of sacrificial love, he has removed all of the barriers that were between us and our relationship with God. Maybe for some of us, we actually don't feel like that this morning. Maybe we feel there are still some things between us and God. Maybe some habits that we can't seem to break or attitudes that we can't shake or um, shame that kind of lingers from mistakes that we've made. But you know, I, I really believe, and you know, as I've been preparing for today, it's really been on my heart. Like when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. You know, so this morning, let's just come and lay that stuff at the foot of the cross. Anything that is between us and God and let him deal with it. There is no longer anything that can come between us because on the cross, Jesus paid for all of it. Just to finish, I wanted to read um, from the book of Romans where the apostle Paul talks about the effect of the cross. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then later, who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.